0: For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit RedemptionOKC.com. And we're going to look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 19. If you've got your Bibles, you might turn there today. And this is just a messy, unflattering section of scripture. Uh, it kind of reminds me of you know, washing dishes with four kids in the house. Like you finish a load, you clean up the mess and you turn around and you're like, are we doing this again? Like right already? And that's kind of the way this whole text goes, is it feel like you clean up one mess and then another mess shows up right on cue. So let me remind you where we've been in 2 Samuel. King David, we've been studying the life of David and walking through kind of his trajectory and his life and got himself in a bit of a mess, but he was... The king that God wanted in Israel, but his own son Absalom rebelled against David and led a a coup. And so David had to flee. And there was this uh, kind of tension and civil war that was mounting. Uh, We looked last week and, um, you know, as you you think about your your own son leading a coup against the king, uh, that's bad for family dinners and family reunions, but it's also bad for Absalom's soul. Uh, this was a spiritual rebellion. It wasn't just a rebellion against his daddy, King David. This was a rebellion against the Lord and the, the Lord's anointed king. And so there's something else at play that we're gonna see as this walks through, or as we walk through this today. And last week we saw that the coup was eventually put down. Absalom had actually uh, put a, was, was put to death. And chapter 18 said that God had delivered David from all of his enemies. And so in that, or, or from his enemies. Now, that's a good thing. But what we're gonna see today is David's not celebrating because David, though he's victorious as a king, he's also, as a father, he's also lost a son. And so David's got this turmoil going on in his heart and you're gonna see how that works today. And here's what, what I want us to understand. If we're gonna be loyal to the Lord, we've got to surrender to the Lord's ways. We've gotta take life on the Lord's terms, not our terms. And that, that's the nature of learning to live under God's rule. And under divine law. And so each of us has to choose between What I want to say today is each of us has to choose between what I'm going to call the way of self and the way of surrender. So there's two paths in life that we have to choose, the way of self or the way of surrender. And the way of self eventually always leads to pain and death. And the way of surrender always eventually leads to joy in life. And so we're gonna see those two trajectories kind of worked out as we go through this day. So let's look at 2 Samuel 19. We'll start in verse one. It says, it was told to Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city, meaning they had to sneak into the city. That day is people who steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, you today have covered with shame the faces of all your servants who this day have saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, you would be pleased. Now, therefore, rise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat at the gate. And the people were told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. So as you think about this, this passage, there's a pretty emotional scene. In fact, the writer kind of draws out David's emotion. Like he could have just said, uh, it, it, this was tough for David, it was hard, he was sad about his son, but he doesn't. He like, he, he kind of milks the emotion and he's like, Absalom, Absalom. He's talking about what David's weeping. He's describing David's dress and his demeanor and everything uh, that's going on around him. And so in that, um, you see David continually wrestling with the loss of his son. And friends, here's the thing as we begin to look at this as we begin to look at this passage, David's not always going to we're not always going to do the right thing. There're going to be times when we we make mistakes and when we go the wrong direction and we're going to need someone to speak into our lives. And in the middle of this this passage and what we're seeing in this text, it looks like I've lost a page a minute, so I'm getting out of order here. Uh, as you begin to think about this, this text, David is wrestling with the loss of his son. And as he does, he's really reeling from all that's happened. And yet there's, it kind of reminds us of a past situation. There's another situation in, the, in 2 Samuel where King Saul had actually died and David called everyone to grieve Saul's death. And in that case, it was right. Why? Because Saul was the anointed king that God had chosen for Israel. And so David was right to honor him in that but Absalom's a very different case. Absalom is a traitor. Absalom, Absalom is, a, is rebelling. Absalom's fighting against uh, the people of Israel. And in that, um, what we see is that David is going to actually do the wrong thing in grieving. And he's going to, he's gonna actually exalt um, evil and he's gonna diminish righteousness. And so he's gonna get called out by Joab. Now, as you begin this, it's interesting to think about the emotional state of David. Um, can you think of other people in the Bible that have lost a son? In fact, this is a pretty common theme as you walk through the scriptures. And as you th- Chris, can we maybe get some house lights up just a little bit? I'm looking at everyone, and everyone's like, I can't see my nets right now. So, Man, cra- the, Spirit's, the Spirit's working here, man. We're on the same page. Um, but as you get into this passage, you think about David lost a son, and it's tough, but he's not the only one to lose a son. In fact, when you look at the scriptures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, all lost a son, and... God lost a son. And so you, you see this pattern and this tension that happens all throughout the scriptures. In fact, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave what? His only son. God gave his son. Isaiah 53 says about Jesus that the father was pleased to bruise him that the father was willingly giving his son because he knew what it would accomplish. He knew what the end game was. He knew that it was through the giving of a son and the death of a son that the salvation of humanity would be made possible. And so he willingly laid down his own son. And so God saw the goodness that was to come from the loss of his son. David here only sees the loss. He doesn't see anything good. And there's probably even a deeper grief going along with this for David because some of the pain was his fault. Second Samuel 12, as we look back after David committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he had her husband Uriah murdered, uh, thus says the Lord, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And so David, I think in the middle of this grief over the loss of his son is also dealing with the guilt of his own sin. In other words, as we see this passage and what I want you to understand about this kind of repetitious nature of all of this is that sin, uh, sin always takes us further than we think we will go. And it always reaches wider than we think it will, it will reach. It always scatters and hurts more people than we ever think it will. Sin takes a toll. Sin causes us, and you see this in David in this passage, that sin causes us to be unsettled, to be uncertain, to be unsatisfied, that we can't find a place of freedom, of joy, of rest, because sin, the toll that sin takes. You notice in this passage how everything's upside down? And I love the phrase that, uh, that's used here when it says that the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. He says, David, you, you seem to love those that love you or hate those that love you and, and you're loving the, the son Absalom that hated you and, and that actually despised and rebelled against you. Everything just seems to be upside down. And so Joab's gonna step in and get David's attention. And friends, sometimes we need a friend that will come along and give us a wake-up call. And Joab is that guy for David. And one of the things that, that is so admirable about David is every time David gets rebuked, he actually repents. Every time someone comes to David, David doesn't always do what's right, but when he does what's wrong and someone comes and tells him about it, David, he listens to the word that's come. He did it with Nathan after he had cheated with Bathsheba. He did it uh, with Joab when Joab sent the widow in to call him to bring Absalom home. He does it here when Joab shows up and calls him again. And friends, we're not always gonna do the right thing, but we must always listen to the rebuke when we've done what's wrong. And it's a hard thing to be a leader. And the thing with David having to grieve here, but also to be the king is that he represents the Lord. And so the way that David lives, he represents what God's view is. And so Joab in a sense says, David, you can weep on your own time, but you've got a people to lead right now. You need to step in to this moment. The problem here is that Joab's the bad guy. David, I mean, that Absalom's the bad guy. David's weeping over Absalom. He's crying out. The people can hear it. They can see it. And he's weeping over Absalom. But Absalom's the one that's brought about evil. Absalom's the one that's done all the wrong. Absalom's the one that, that's divided the nation. Absalom's the one that David said, we have to flee the city right now before we're all dead. And so David had to hightail it and run. Uh, all the people of Israel ran and said, David, uh, in, in last week's passage, we saw that David stood there and and, and watched all the people leave and greeted them as they left. And so Joab, Joab is confronting him and saying, look, my soldiers and my men put their lives on the line to defend you. And these people risked losing every one of their possessions by fleeing and staying loyal to you and staying by your side whenever there was the middle of a rebellion. And you're more upset about the one who fought against you than you were about those that loved you and stayed loyal and stayed faithful to you. What you're doing is wrong. And so Joab calls him out primarily because he's ignoring God's law. He's actually honoring wickedness by weeping over Absalom, and he's diminishing righteousness by not thanking these people and being grateful to those that defended the Lord and his throne. So the reality here is that, and this is the hard reality, I think we have to see and we see it over and over in this text is that God's a God of justice and sin has to be punished. Sin is always eventually found out and sin always brings about pain and death and must be punished. And so even though, and so in this instance, the king's son needed to die even if that was painful to the king, even if that was hurtful to him. And so Joab calls him out. So in this, um, David's gonna return home and he's, he's gonna, recognize what he does. It says he goes back out to the gate and he welcomes all the people in. They come out and see him. And so there's kind of this moment where it's like, okay, we can go back to normal, but it's been robbed of all the joy. It's been robbed of the sense of victory. It's been robbed of the excitement of God showed up and defended us and, and we, we came out victorious. And so verse 10, it says, now Israel, in Israel, every man had fled to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us is dead in battle. Now, now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So you have this interesting scenario now because you have half the nation that followed after Absalom and they were rebelled against David. And yet David was victorious. And the people look back and say, you know what? We kind of made an idiotic decision here. Like David's been faithfully ruling over this, uh, this area for 40 years. He's gone out in battle. He defeated Goliath and ran off the Philistines. He, uh, David's killed his 10,000s. Uh, his David's defended us and brought about peace and brought about good in our country greater than anything we've ever experienced. And we rebelled against him and we ran after his idiot son who's never won a single battle. In fact, the only battle he fought was against David and he lost Uh, Absalom couldn't even ride a donkey without hanging himself from a tree. Uh, Absalom uh, got a chariot, marched around with 50 dudes running through the city, riding his chariot through town, acting like he was this brave warrior, but he had never won a single battle. And they look and go, and David faithfully defended us and fought for us for years. And we turned our back on him and ran after this this young guy. And, And isn't that what people oftentimes do? Some new idea pops up, makes all kinds of promises, and you run after the hype of the new, the new thing. Uh, do you ever see that in our leader? People that r- turn away from the trusted thing that they should be able to count on and run after some new thing that promises something it can't really deliver? And we see it all the time, don't we? And so that's what the, the people begin to realize. And they say, man, what's gonna happen? Should we receive David back as king? And then maybe more importantly, will David receive us back? after we rebelled against him. Like, Joab's a pretty hot-headed dude. Maybe David's gonna send Joab out and heads are gonna start to roll. And so these people are a little bit scared about what's gonna happen. How do we come back together as a country? And what do we do? So David is gonna make a political political move. David is gonna invite Judah to come home. Now, this is interesting because Judah, the tribe of Judah is where the revolt of Absalom happened. Absalom had gone out to Hebron and that's where the revolt had begun. And so this is kind of ground zero for the rebellion that came against him. In fact, in that, um, the, the leaders or advisors for Absalom, Ahithophel, and Amasa, ha, uh, Amasa had come from uh, the tribe of Judah. And so if there's going to be restoration and reconciliation, Judah is going to have to come with David. And so David goes to them and he begins to kind of gently woo them. And he says uh, in kind of the next few verses, he, he invites them and says, look, I'm from the tribe of Judah. You're bone of my bone, you're flesh of my flesh. Like we're brothers, we're, we're family come home. And so he appeals to them based on their relationship. He also appeals to them based on their anxieties. He says, look, I will set my, my commander Joab aside and I will make a mass of the king or the leader of my army so that you don't have to fear. One of your own will be the, the primary general. And so he tries to appeal to them on that level and he graciously welcomes them home. And so then in verses uh, 16 to four to forty. Uh, We're gonna see four individuals that greet David and those are kind of representative and they're representative of the the people that would be coming home at this time, but they're also, I think, representative of of us and the way that we oftentimes operate. I mean, they each are gonna come home, but some of them are still clinging to the way of self. And what we're gonna see is they're gonna miss out on the joy and freedom that comes from the way of surrender. And then we'll see a couple dudes that come home and they're in the way of surrender and you're gonna see the freedom and joy that they experience. So the first guy is a guy named Shimei. Uh, Shimei was, if you remember last week, Shimei was a Benjamite and a Benjamite, uh, who was, uh, which tribe was Saul from? Any of you know? Saul was a Benjamite. Saul was, uh, was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so these are guys that came from Saul's tribe. And Shimei was the guy that ran around in the last couple chapters. And after David gets run out of the city, Shimei shows up to mock him. Don't you know how people that have harbored bitterness wait till you're down and then like show up and wanna like rub dirt in your face. So Shimei's like throwing rocks at David. And he's like, hey, you dead dog and hollering across the way. And, and David's army's going, dude, can we take that guy out? And David says, I'll just let him go. So now Shimei has to come home. And he's not quite as bold now as he was a little bit ago when he thought Absalom was gonna win. And so now he comes back and uh, he, in this text, just uh, says, let let not my Lord hold my guilt against me. And so David's gonna show mercy. He's gonna give him pardon. And the reason is, because if David acts as Shimei, even though David's soldiers go, hey, can we go take that guy's head off right now? Uh, David said, no, because he knows if he does that, the rest of the nation's gonna panic and they're all gonna run. So he pardons and he offers mercy to him, even though Shimei had offended him greatly. But Shimei is not coming to David out of loyalty and love. He's coming out of self-preservation. And so he's coming home with his tail between his legs and sorrow. So that's the first guy you see. The next one you see is a guy named Zeba. And it's interesting in the text, it says that Zeba rushed down and he hurried. He and all his men rushed in to see David. They wanted to be one of the first ones through. Why? Because Zeba knows he lied. Zeba lied about Mephibosheth. He had betrayed Mephibosheth. He ditched the crippled uh, guy who he was supposed to take care of. He was supposed to be a servant to Mephibosheth. In fact, he ditched him, left him for dead in Jerusalem, ran away, told David that Mephibosheth had betrayed him and spoke ill of him. And so now he's rushing home. He's like, I need to get to David before he hears about Mephibosheth. And I, I need to get home. And so uh, David receives Ziba back in. The next guy that it mentions comes is Mephibosheth. This is a crippled man who was a son of, uh, son of Jonathan, and a grandson of, of King Saul. And Mephibosheth had stayed loyal to David in the midst of uh, this scenario. Even though Ziba had betrayed him, abandoned him, slandered him, uh, what we're going to see is Mephibosheth stayed faithful. You know, James says that uh, faith without works is dead. What's going to be interesting here is Ziba has words about his loyalty to the king. Mephibosheth has works. Ziba is going to be able to say, hey, I'm loyal to you, David. Mephibosheth's going to say, look at me. You'll see my loyalty. What is it that he did? And in his wisdom, what he said was, David, if you're run out and have to live in exile, then I will be as an exile. If you don't have the comforts of home, I will not have the comforts of home. And so he lets himself go. He says, look at my mangy beard. I've not washed or cut my beard since the day you left. Look at my nasty, skanky feet and toenails. Um, I haven't cleaned my feet since the day that you left because if you're gonna be in discomfort, I'm gonna be in discomfort. Look at my dirty clothes. I haven't changed my clothes since the day that you left because if you're gonna be hurting, I'm gonna be hurting. And by his works, he proved his loyalty and his faith. And so um, Ziba had words but they were just words and they were actually empty words. Mephibosheth proved himself by letting himself go and showing his loyalty to the king. Friends, this is one of my heroes because the faithful stay true to their king. The, the faithful are loyal to the king. The faithful endure, come what may. The faithful persevere. The faithful stand even when hardship comes. And, and that's what grace ought to produce in us as it produced in Mephibosheth. Like Joshua of old, there's a time where we have to say, as for me and my house, will serve the Lord. And so Mephibosheth stands faithful to David and just David receives him back. Now he can't completely undo everything because earlier he had promised, he'd given all of Mephibosheth's belongings to Ziba. Here he just splits them and says, I'm just going to split and have, it'll let you each have, have half. Now two reasons for that. One is uh, he, he just pardoned Shimei who had been his enemy. Ziba had at least through self-preservation, pretended to be a friend, he can't really execute him at this point he, after pardoning the others. And so he separates them, but he also can't put Mephibosheth back under Mephibosheth's care because he's got to protect him. So he just says, we're gonna separate you. and let you go separate ways. So I love this dude. Um, I, I love the way he operates, but I love this next guy too. There's another guy named Barzillai. And Barzillai is an interesting guy. He's a rich, tough old dude. And as he comes home, you see this uh, interesting passage or, or connection with uh, with Mephibosheth in that uh, he also is another who walks in the way of surrender rather than the way of self. And so when Barzillai comes home, he is a Gileadite. And it says that he comes and he wants to walk with David, uh, David the king across the Jordan. Now through th- this rich old man comes and what we see is that when David was on the run, running away from Absalom in exile, uh, this man came to David and said, let me in my house take care of you. Let me provide for you. And he provided food for David and his family and his people when David was on the run. So David says, man, because of that, out of gratitude, why don't you come home with me? You can live with me. I will now, I will now take care of you. And I love the way this old guy re- responds to that. He, he comes and says, uh, said to the king, how many years have I still to live? that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem. I am this day 80 years old. Can I even discern what is pleasant, what's not? Can your servant taste what he eats and what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should I be added add to your burden? Your servant, let your servant go a little while over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me such a reward as this? But let me return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother, but here's, here's your servant, my son. Let him go over with the king and do for him whatever sings good to you. Uh, man, I love this guy. This guy is just says, man, I'm an old guy. Like, what am I gonna do? Like, I'd probably have to buy new pants if I went to, if I went to the palace with you. I, like, I'm too old to even taste the good food that you had, all the good singing you got. I'm too old to hear it. I, like, I just, let me go home and die with, and be buried with my family. Just let me, let me go back to my ranch and, Um, You don't need to. You don't owe me anything. But I'm happy that you are going back home, and I I love, I love the the kind of heart of that. Let me just die with my people and live well. Um, You owe me nothing. I'm I'm grateful that you're that you're getting to come home. But there's two things he asks for, which to me are fascinating. Barzillai says, "But can I walk you across the river?" Because I want, everyone that sees, I want everyone that's watching to see my loyalty to you. I want them to know that my loyalty lies with, the, with, with God's king. And so I want to escort you back home. I want to walk with you across the Jordan in front of everyone so they know my loyalty lies with Yahweh and with his anointed king. And so I want, my, I want to state my claim with you. And then he says, and I want to aim my kid in the right direction. I want to send my kid with you so that you would train him up and, and so that he would know that God's man is, is in Jerusalem. So I love these, these, these two guys and their faithfulness and their loyalty and their love for their king and everything that you see in that. But at this point, the story seems to be going pretty well, right? Like you just think, oh, we're gonna get a, we're gonna get a, a kind of a turn the corner sort of moment and things are gonna settle back down. David's home, he's graciously restoring all the people home, he's making wives moves. Um, let me ask you a question. What's the one thing that will destroy the unity and the togetherness of God's people? If you were Satan and you wanted to sow seeds, it would cause division and disruption within God's people. What is it you would sow? It's pride. And the very next thing you see is pride. In fact, um, from this point in the story through the, through the end of the whole next chapter, you're gonna see the pride of the way of self on display and how selfish pride disrupts and destructs God's people. Uh, here's what's fascinating to me. How long did God's people, remember God's people said, well, let's all go back with David. Let's all go back home. How long did they, did they stay faithful? It was like a day, right? Like they were faith. they've run off after Absalom, this, this kind of young new leader and, and, and things had not gone well. So they come back to David and they're gonna immediately turn around and run after another in just a minute. But uh, when you begin to look at this, uh, this scenario, it's fascinating to me that what turned, you know, earlier had turned a day of victory into mourning. We see that same pattern repeated, that that which should be joyful, the reunion of the nation is upset again. And in this, you have this scenario of uh, the, the people of Judah that David had welcomed in. Remember that one tribe that he had brought in and he wooed them home and they began to come home? Well, the rest of the nation looks at Judah and goes, well, why didn't you treat us as nice as you treated them? And they get their feelings hurt. And so you have this interchange in verses 41 to 44, Israel speaks and says, hey, we should have gotten honor. We were more faithful than Judah was when you left. Now, why didn't we get to go first? And then Judah retaliates and says, and don't get your knickers in a knot. Let's all just go home. And then they're gonna retaliate and they're gonna get all upset. And, and they're gonna say, well, we were more spiritual. We spoke first. Besides that, we've got 10 tribes and you're only one tribe. You know, we're, we have more people. And then it says literally in verse 44, it says, but Judah's words were fiercer. Man, is there anything that looks more like our culture like, than that right now? Is, there's arguments going on. And what Judah says is we'll, we'll just scream louder. Like if we, if we, we scream more, more loudly and more fiercely, then, uh, then we get to win. And so you have this trust gap that's still there amongst these people and they can't figure out how to come together. And then a focal point for their pride steps forward, it's a man named Sheba in, verse, in chapter 20. And uh, this man named Sheba is described as a worthless man. And can, let me ask you a question. Can a charismatic driven leader also be a spiritually worthless man? And absolutely. And you see that here in this passage. Look at uh, chapter 20. It says, "'Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bikri of Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion with David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel.' So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bikri, And the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem." So now you've got this kind of ominous scene of the divided nation. And in fact, uh, as you, if you work through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, the rest of uh, the Old Testament history books, what you're gonna see is that this is the trajectory of the nation. You're gonna have a divided nation, you have Judah and you have Israel, and they're gonna be a separated nation that's at war and at odds with one another. And so you have this kind of, kind of ominous moment of what's happening here. Now, Sheba's rejected God's King David, and he, he's going to do it on certain grounds. And you notice what he says. He says, we have no portion with David. We have no inheritance with the son of Jesse with David. What he's saying is, this isn't gonna pay off for us. Like we're in this to get something out of it. We, we want something back. And we, we like the king as long as he gives us what we want. But whenever we don't think we're gonna get enough out of the situation, then we're no longer gonna follow the king because we're not getting anything out of it. And do you know, any consumers like that? And the word we use for that's consumers, right? Does that happen in our day? People that are, they're, they're happy to stay loyal to, to King Jesus as long as they feel like all their needs are getting met. But as soon as something doesn't go their way and they're ready to run after another and say, well, we apparently have no inheritance with this King. We, we, we have no, inherent, no, uh, no portion, nothing coming our way right now from this. And so they begin to turn away. It's a dangerous thing to do. And David's gonna have to deal with this mess and it's still, it's still the, the, the after effects and aftershocks of Absalom's rebellion, isn't it? And sin takes us farther than we ever think we will go and does more destruction than we ever imagine that we'll bring. Now here in verse 6, it's interesting in chapter 20, verse 6, David makes a statement and he says, Now Sheba, the son of Bikri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to a fortified city and escape us. And so in this, um, David says this could actually be worse than Absalom. How could this scenario with the nation going after Sheba be worse than the nation when it was divided over Absalom? The reason is because there's an ethnic difference here there's a tribal warfare here. There's something that, that could be not just a, a division over a personality Absalom that the people ran after, but it could actually be divided on ethnic lines, on tribal lines, and could be something that continues to divide the people as they move forward down the way. And so David says, look, we've got to deal with this right now. So he summons his troops, he's going to send them out, and they're going to go on the hunt pursuing this man named Sheba. Um, there's some leadership battles and stuff happening there. We don't have time to deal with that. But in this, Sheba's gonna run to, to another town and uh, the, the army of David is going to besiege the city and surround it. And in this, you have this fascinating deal because you have this worthless man, Sheba, that's now fled to the city. And in, in the, the kind of next few verses, it says, there's a wise woman that's gonna show up with a solution. And I love this uh, because this woman comes out of the city and uh, in contrast to this worthless man, and she says, uh, can I speak to Joab? And i able to speak to him and she says, I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. Now, that sounds like such a nice gentle statement, doesn't it? Now, what I want you to understand is she's not saying, I'm a quiet little church lady that's going to be gentle in this moment. She's actually about to initiate an act of violence What she's saying when she's saying, I am a faithful and peaceful servant, what she's saying is, and I'm loyal to the Lord. I'm loyal to the Lord's anointed David. And I'm going to keep the peace by siding with the Lord and not going against, not following after Sheba. I'm going to stay true to the Lord. And so I'll have peace with God in the midst of this. And so in that, she works out a deal with David and says, look, or with the army and says, you've besieged the city, but instead of punishing the entire city, how about I just just get Sheba and, kind of hurl his head over the wall to you. And we just take take care of this this way. And Joab tells this lady, okay, got a deal. So I don't know exactly how this unfolds. Like, I don't know if the lady went and like got a posse and they went and tracked him down in the market. I don't know how they cut his head off. I just got to think this is a pretty messy, gory, gross sort of thing. And I don't really know how it works, but she comes back and it's like, hey, is Joab out there? And you know, if this lady's just like, you know, this reminds me of, honestly, it's a little bit like Monty Python. Scene. It's like this lady's got this head of this guy who's been rebelling, and she just tosses it over the wall. And uh, I kind of wonder, like, what's the right thing if you're the army? Do you catch it? Do you just dodge it? Like, I kind of picture these soldiers all scooting out of the way and tiptoeing. And uh, it, to me, it's almost a comic scene, except that it's a man's life, and it's blood that has been shed, and it's a gory, gross, awful thing. But in that, um, what we see is the way of self never ends up in joy. It always ends up in destruction and it certainly did for Sheba. But this woman intervened and said, let me deal with it. And we'll have the, 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 the blood of one man shed rather than the blood of the entire city on our hands. And so she deals with it by executing this man. Now here's um, in the next chapter in chapter 21. And are you tired of this routine yet? This rebellion, punishment, sin, blood, gross stuff. And then you turn around and it comes back. and It's like, we're gonna do it. Chapter 21, we do the same thing all over. We're we're about to see the same thing again, and we're about to see another gross, uh, kind of gory scene. And chapter 21 tells us there's been a famine in Israel for three years. Now, uh, if you know the Old Testament, you know the, the promises of blessings and curses and things that happen. Anytime there's a famine in Israel, there ought to be a question. Is there a reason why there's a famine in Israel? Because uh, sometimes famines just happen in the world. But oftentimes what you see in scripture is that when a famine comes on God's people, that there's a reason for there. And so David, not sure why he waited three years. Maybe he was fine and had enough food. But after three years, he begins to inquire the Lord and going, hey, what's up? Like, is there something going on here that we need to know? And the Lord says, yes. There's blood guilt on Saul and on his house. So there's, there's a reason why this is happening. And so he begins to explain this. Now here's what's, uh, there's a couple of things that are really fascinating to me. I want you to think about passage of time and God's promises and dealing with those things that come about. How long had Saul been off the scene at this point? Saul had been gone for 35 years. And so yet there's a famine in the land 35 years after Saul because of something that Saul had done and God didn't just let it go. He didn't just look the other way. He didn't just let it slide, but he'd been patient. He'd been slow to anger. He'd been, he'd been compassionate on the people. In some ways, some people think he didn't execute it early because he wanted David and the kingdom to become secure. And so he waited until they were in a better place and could withstand this kind of a thing. Um, But as you think about this, God had been mercifully waiting without punishing the sin for all that time. But there's no statute of limitations on murder. And Saul had executed these uh, men, the Gibeonites, and there needed to be justice done. Here's another passage of time fact that's fascinating about this text. Who are the Gibeonites? The Gibeonites were a group of people that Joshua 500 years earlier had given a promise to, and he actually, they had actually tricked him and betrayed him. They were Canaanites that should have been run out of the land, but they tricked Joshua and, and, and got him to make a promise that, that he, wouldn't, he wouldn't execute them. And so Joshua kind of is bitter about it and says, okay, I, prayed, I made my oath, so I will keep my oath, but you'll have to serve in the house of the Lord, but you will have your lives. And so the Gibeonites for 500 years had been able to count on the promise that Joshua gave to them and to their people that they would be spared and that Israel would not execute them. And would not run them out of the land. And then Saul comes along 500 years later. And Saul doesn't honor that vow. He doesn't honor that promise. And he executes some of the men of of the Gibeonites. And in that, um, there's to me, there's just some amazing things to think about. When you think about God's holiness, when you think about God's word, when you think about God's promises and how true he is to the things he says he will do. And 35 years later, he's still says that sin's gotta be dealt with. I can't just look the other way. I'm not gonna simply let things slide. But 500 years later, he also says, but the justice that we've promised to these guys has to be defended 500 years later. I'm not gonna let it go. So th- three things I want us to point out about God's holiness. God honored a 500-year-old promise. and says, no, the, the word, my word and the, and the word of my people must stand and we're not gonna alter it just because time's passed. No man, another, another thing that we see by God and his holiness, no man's above the justice of God. He says, justice needs to be executed upon the king. The highest in the land is still subservient to my justice. Another thing you see is that no man is too low for the justice of God. The, the Gibeonites were the lowest of the low, the Canaanites that were, were tolerated and allowed to live in the land. And he says, but if we do wrong against them, I will still fight for justice. For the, for the top of the, the, the highest in the land has to submit to justice and the lowest in the land can be lifted up by justice. And so I will, and it doesn't matter in the passage of time. God always keeps his word and his word will be honored amongst the nations. Friends, so let me ask you a question. How important is a promise? How important is a word? Uh, is, is a promise something that we swept away with time? Is a promise something that can uh, ebb and flow with the culture? It is a promise something that is meant to, to, to blow away whenever the cultural winds blow a different direction? No, where God has spoken, we don't bend. And God reinforces that here. Now, here's the he's thing: The problem is clear. David says, this is the problem. Uh, there's a, there, there was blood guilt on the Gibeonites. So what's the solution? David asks the Gibeonites and goes to them and says, look, we're guilty. What do we do? What do you want us to do? How do I make atonement? How do I make this right? How do I work through this so we can get this problem into a better place. And they say, we don't want money. We don't want freedom. We don't want revenge. We just want justice. We want our names cleared and, and we want we want our the blood of our sons avenged. And so they asked for seven sons of Saul to be killed. And that is executed. And so these men were hanged or impelled um, on a hill outside the city. And so they were left there. And it says that they were hanged before the Lord or before Yahweh. That's interesting to me in Numbers 35 33 says, atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood was shed except by the blood of the one who shed it. And so one of the sons of Saul who had executed this, uh, the Gibeonites had to be executed in its place. There had to be blood that was shed. Um, Saul's offense had violated a covenant. In fact, in that day, they would talk about cutting a covenant. When they cut a covenant, they would take an animal and they would divide it. And they would say, if I violate the promise or my word or the things that I say, then may it be done to me as what was done to this animal. And they would walk between the animal pieces. And so here, Saul had violated the covenant and so there must be blood to be shed. And after this is completed, it says in verse 14 that God hears their prayer for the land and he removes the famine. This was a divine justice issue. This wasn't just mere revenge. There's something bigger at stake here. So friends, messy stuff. Any of you tired of the mess yet? Where do we find hope? Where do we find hope in this passage? And I wanna point us to two places where we find incredible hope in the middle of chapter 21. Uh, the first thing we see that gives us hope is in 21.3, there's a, the word that David uses there when he says uh, to the Gibeonites, it says, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? It's this word of atonement that's critical to understand here. Uh, you think about the passage and what we've been looking, looking at in all this. Absalom rebelled against David and things were, had gone awry until what? Absalom hangs himself on a tree, and once Absalom's executed and hangs on a tree, they're able to reunite the nation and bring everyone back home. There had to be shedding of blood to make the way for that sin, but the way of self always leads to pain and death. Sheba, in his rebellion, um, they, they besieged the city, and the whole city was under, uh, under a death watch. But Sheba, once he was executed and killed, the death of that one man saved the rest of the city, and so the rest of the city could be spared. Here in this scenario, the Gibeonites, Saul's sons will die and the famine will rescind and everything can go back to a better place where they can flourish. So you see this principle that shows up over and over and over in the scriptures of there must be shedding of blood in order to bring about restoration. Um, Friends, this is the idea of atonement. Atonement must be made for man's sins so that he can stand before God. Um, All religions are not the same. All, All roads don't lead to heaven. There's, there's one way that we get right with God and it's through the atonement. It's through the shedding of blood. This is a, a truism that we see and it's something that we see throughout the Old Testament and it points to the scriptures. In fact, when you look at the Old Testament, you see this pattern and the reason you're so tired of it right now is it just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming and 2 Samuel, will see it over and over and over and it's saying there has to be an atonement that's made to bring about restoration and good. And all the Old Testament looks forward and says, there must be another son who's to come, who can bring about a, final, a full atonement. Then you get to the gospels and you look at Jesus and it's, oh, the son is here. The son who has come to make atonement is here. And so they, they, you celebrate and you focus in on that. And then you get to the New Testament and you get past that and everything points back to Jesus and says, the son has come and he died and he made an atonement for our sins. And so we can rest in that. What is it we do when we take communion every week? We proclaim the atonement, right? We remember that there was a son who had to die. And we say there was bread that represents the broken body of Jesus. And there's a cup that represents the shed blood of Jesus. And so we say, we do this as often as we take in order to remember Christ's coming and what he did and what it is that he accomplished for us. And we say, we herald the Lord's death until he comes. And why is Christianity so obsessed with this thing called death because it's only through his death that we have life. And it's what ultimately brings us something. You get to Revelation at the end of the Bible and there's a lamb standing as if slain. And so even at the end, when things are made right and things are good, there's still one that's there that is standing and there's a reminder of death. Friends, atonement is gory. It's horrible. It's an awful thing. But we can never minimize or skip or run past the pain that sin causes I love what one commentator said. He says, from slicing a bull's throat in Leviticus 1 all the way to Calvary, God's always said that atonement is nasty and repulsive. Christians must beware of becoming too refined, longing for a kindler, gentler faith. If we've grown too used to Golgotha, perhaps Gibeah should, can shock us back to the truth. Atonement is a drippy, bloody, smelly business. And the stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. So friends, we have to remember the atonement. And that's why when David asked that question, that ought to give us hope. But there's a second thing that gives us hope. Look in verse 7. Verse 7 in chapter 21 verse 7 it says, "But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath the Lord made that was between them, between David and Jonathan the son of Saul." Mephibosheth this crippled son of Jonathan that David had promised and given his word in 2 Samuel 9 that I will protect, I will take care of, I will guard this one and he will be as my own son. He'll eat at my table. He'll be as my own family. And I promise that I will always take care of this one because of his promise to Jonathan, not to Mephibosheth, his promise to Jonathan, he spares Mephibosheth's life here. And so even though Mephibosheth is a descendant of Saul and even though Mephibosheth was under the curse of this, uh, this condemnation and even though Mephibosheth was guilty of the blood that had been shed of the Gibeonites, and even though he was under the wrath that was to come and the judgment that was to come, David says, because of the promise I made to Jonathan, Mephibosheth will be spared and he will pass through. And friends, that's the promise that we have too. That God looks at us and says, because of the promise I made to Jesus and because of the shed blood of the son, you will be spared, even though you too are under wrath, even though you're under judgment and you rightly could be executed, I will spare you for the shed blood of my son and for the promise that I've given to him. And friends, that's good news for us. That's good news. Let me end with this. Do you remember at the beginning we talked about David? Um, David weeping over, the shed, over his son that had died. David weeping over all that had happened. In that, in that moment, David, uh, it says he turned the victory into mourning. Can I just say that, that our heavenly father will not do the same? That our, our heavenly father, when his son has died, looks upon that and he rejoices in our coming home. He will run out. He doesn't just sit at the gate and, and, and weep over what has happened. But in fact, it says he welcomes us home. Jesus said that he will be like a father who runs out laughing all the way to welcome us in, that he's gonna throw a feast and we're gonna celebrate, that, uh, that, that, we, will, uh, that we will celebrate with him as victors and overcomers, um, in reign with Him, and so there's going to be great joy, um, friends. There's a way of life, a way of self and a way of surrender. The way of surrender always leads to joy in life. So let's choose to walk in that way. Let me pray for us, Father. I thank you that we have an atonement. That though we could not earn our own way, and though we were to were under judgment, that you sent your only Son out of love for us to make atonement for our sins that we might have forever life with you. Father, help us to trust that. Father, if there's any here who are still walking in the way of self, Father, would you just convict them that that way eventually leads to pain and to suffering and call them to surrender and put their faith in the way of the Son, the way of surrender, the way of trusting the atonement, that they might live forever and rejoice forever. Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this redemption sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.